Welcome to Terms of Service, a podcast hosted by Parallel. My name is Alex Chetvertinsky. And I'm Nicholas Wiering. This is a podcast about Web3 technologies decoded specifically for the art and culture industries, trying to cut through the hype of crypto marketing and explaining the real concepts behind the buzzwords. Welcome to the second episode of Terms of Service. This week, we have two guests with us. We have Nathan Genever and Scott Brewer, both coming to us from the west coast of the United States. Uh, we are currently recording this from Brussels, and Nicholas Wierink and myself, Alex Chetvertinsky. And this week, we're going to be focusing on smart contracts, which can be considered in some sense if we continue the metaphor that we started in the previous episode on blockchains. Uh, if we think of the blockchain as a computer, we could probably say that smart contracts are the software layer that runs on top. But we will unpack these concepts with our guests. And uh, before we get started, uh, maybe Nathan, you could uh, go ahead and give us some background on yourself, your career, what you've been working on, how you got to where you are, and what you're working on right now. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, thanks for having me. And um... You know, this is a concept. Uh, this is a topic that is particularly close to home for me. I have spent a lot of time with smart contracts, and this comes from an early interest in cypherpunk culture growing up, and you know, liking movies like Hackers from the '90s, and really having an interest in decentralization of power and using software in particular to be a powerful source for the individual and to reclaim power. Um, so growing up, I got interested in computers and started you know, taking computer science courses in college. And I met some other like-minded uh, people that were working on protocols like BitTorrent, which are these you know, answers to centralized authority. And, and from there, I learned about this interesting thing called Bitcoin. And, this is in 2009, 2010 in its first iterations. Um, and so I'm kind of new to programming back then, but I'm learning about it. And I sort of you know, come into my, what I call applied cryptography career. And this is a term that um, I've used, I think others have coined it before me as you know, using uh, cryptography as you, know, you would say applied ma mathematics if you were you know, a statistician or if you were you know, building, you know, uh, you know, roads and things like this, if you're doing civil engineering, but, um, you know, cryptography has traditionally been in the realm of heavy academics and the application of cryptography is kind of a newer thing. Um, you know, it was first applied to like PGP signatures in the early hacker days, and then it becomes uh, useful with currency and Bitcoin. And um, I was learning about it and evolving with it and then became very uh, entangled with Ethereum as it evolves out of Bitcoin. And I was in the first set of developers for smart contracts that came out of Ethereum and started working with the early organizations that were coming out of consensus like Gnosis. And uh, I've worked with IPFS and Filecoin. Um, and I have worked with security auditing firms to do security auditing on smart contracts. And uh, more recently, I have, again, been working with Gnosis and hanging out with, with Gnosis to work on DAOs, which are uh, taking smart contracts and really kind of pushing them to new applications beyond just finance, uh, democracy and, and voting and um, other things. 
And I've also been building my own DAO, taking all of this theory and um, you know, uh, tech and philosophy and trying to apply it to the real world and building um, an artist collective here in Los Angeles that uses applied cryptography to create a fair, more balanced world for uh, musicians and traditional artists. Thank you. Uh, Scott, I think it's your turn. Not sure you actually need me on the call after having that uh, after having that introduction done, um, but I will give you a brief background of myself. Uh, I definitely don't come from uh, such a heavily crypto world as Nathan does. My background is primarily through a combination of you know arts and um, and technology. Uh, I started in my that side of my life quite a while ago, a decade plus. Uh, with working with a master's of design where I was doing spatial sound studies um, and learning how you can use generative sound synthesis to generate to create artworks and then kind of fell into this world of working with museums and art galleries and digital strategy and how you could use technology to enhance the on-site uh, experience that people could have and really found this this love of of how technology can actually enhance the way that people move about space and interact with space and engage with, with space. Uh, did that for a decade or so, and then uh, about you know a year and a half, two years ago, got sucked into that world of NFTs. And a lot of the uh, concepts of creating living artworks really spoke to me and it's it's stuff that I've been trying to do for quite a while. And so now I work with a number of people. Most of my work uh, I have done over the last year and a half with an organization called Bright Moments, which creates physical spaces and does a lot of live minting. Um, I also work with a number of artists independently and do work myself. And a lot of that is around the way. And I guess a lot of these questions of how can you actually use smart contracts to create artworks that live and how can you distribute those you know, through a decentralized manner uh, and create interactions with those so that people can actually continue to engage with them, whether that engagement be through purely ownership or transference or, um, or actually adapting and, and changing with those artworks through uh, an interactive smart contract. So I think I was introduced to you by Josh Goldblum of Artworld. So you you work with Artworld as well. I was uh, and and still do technical advisor to Artworld. So I guess through Artworld, I've worked with um, Walid Rad on his uh, Festival of Gratitude drop. Um, most recently, Shuri Nashat. Um, who else is coming up? Um, there's a few other works that are coming up and be released with them, and a lot of that, a lot of that work that I do is really working directly with artists, informing them about what the technology can is capable of doing, and how that that technology can then be leveraged to enhance you know their vision of of the work that they want to get out there. Um, so a good understanding, you know, a good example of that would probably be. Uh, with Waleed Rad's piece for Festival of Gratitude, Waleed had uh, designed 20 cakes that were going to be, uh, that were for dictators. Um, dictators are really heavily into, you know, 
they're signs of opulence and so he thought it would be funny to create these cakes um, for these dictators and then sell them off and give that money to charities uh, and <clears throat> so working with him we discussed various ways that as a what that you could do with with the contracts underlying that and came about with a way that as the owner of the cake you could buy a cake then as the owner of that cake you would have the opportunity to slice that cake and that would all be done on chain and then you would have the capability to sell those slices so that you know you as the owner could get the cake uh, you could then sell parts of that and a lot of these conversations say uh, you know they go back I met Nathan and a year and a half ago um, and the concepts of ownership and how that integrates to an artwork um, is is really quite fascinating and so all of those questions around you know what is digital ownership um, and bringing an art form that was probably the I don't know, lowest traditionally of the art forms. Digital art was not the one that really got the like prevalence in the in most museums and galleries. Um, and actually bringing it to the forefront and saying that there are new technologies that you can actually use that that now offer a distinct advantage or benefit from there are things that you can't do with a physical painting that you can now do in the digital realm. And a lot of that comes down to ownership and transference and interaction that that to me is what's so fascinating about this field and and why it is so 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 exciting for people entering that field as both artists and technologists yeah um so the the, the topic of uh, smart contracts and mostly evolving smart contracts is a is a fascinating one um but i think before we even get to that we kind of need to to get a clear understanding of what a smart contract is. And, and I think for us, uh, Nicholas and I, what, the projects that we've worked on where we've tried to deploy smart, smart contracts um, with a le level of knowledge that we had, we sort of realized that they were actually much more complicated than they seem to be from, from the onset. Um, so maybe to just understand them better, the first question that I have, um, so uh, Nathan, you were mentioning uh, cypherpunks and if I got the history correctly, the concept of smart contracts was invented by uh, Nick Chabot, who was one of the cypherpunks or the uh, sort of part of that movement, at least. Um, and so my my sort of curiosity was if that concept was already out there um, pre-Bitcoin, um, for what reason was it not implemented in Bitcoin? Are there any particular things about the concept of smart contracts that were not attractive or you know, how did that, how did that sort of come together? Yeah, it's a, a great question. And from my understanding, he coined the term smart contract and also gave it its, uh, its definition of what we wanted out of a smart contract, which would be a set of promises in digital form using some kind of protocol to have people executing those promises, right? Um, now, in 1996, the landscape of applied cryptography looks quite different. Um, the ideas of Bitcoin itself even existed um, before Bitcoin in 2000, um, 2008, 2009. So there was something that was missing from being able to implement um, these ideas. So it's, um, 
it's not that smart contracts didn't um, want to exist. It's just that uh, they could not exist. Um, you could always write a piece of computer code and this computer code could always execute the way that you wrote it to, as long as you trusted some centralized computer to execute that code in a certain way. And so the missing piece that I think the early cypherpunks wanted was to you know, challenge the control structure. And when we talk about contracts, you know, we're kind of inherently talking about ownership. Um, contracts are going to usually be written about who owns what. And because of that, you end up with a lot of power and who gets to determine who owns what. And so I think it was quite wise of the early cypherpunks to have the ambition to want to make sure that this protocol was not centralized and was not um, able to be manipulated by some sort of powerful entity. So we kind of had this missing piece that Bitcoin invented that allows for the idea of smart contracts that we see in its current form uh, to exist. And that, that would be the mining algorithm, the proof of work um, system that is in one sense technical, but in another sense game theoretic. So we created this incentive model to ensure that people that you cannot trust um, don't become too powerful and do um, do execute that protocol of the smart contract um, the, the, to make sure that the agreements in that contract are executed um, safely and correctly. Um, so in, in, in terms of the, the, the well, I think one of the things that we learned uh, in our previous uh, episode was that uh, Bitcoin was, um, let's say, uh, if you were to look at it in terms of a machine, it was something closer to a calculator and that's um, what the sort of group of people who put who, who came up with Ethereum and developed Ethereum wanted to create something more like a computer. Um, and so in that sense, I think maybe there's something that's still a little bit hard to wrap our heads around is that, um, you know, a little bit listening to you talk about it, um, a smart contract is obviously a, an agreement between parties and it has to do with trust and with uh, potentially a transaction. Um, but on the other hand, it's also a piece of software. Um, would it be fair to say that it's both those things? Is it more one than the other? And if it's a piece of software, is it the sort of uh, principal software that runs on a blockchain? Or is there something else that we need to consider before we even get to smart contracts? Yeah, I think that's actually a good question. Because in every sense of the technical term, Bitcoin runs smart contracts. It has a scripting language that has a set of rules that enforce a protocol of how balances will be updated. And this is, you know, it, it even has a, a, its own language inside of uh, its blocks that you can write special types of code in. Um, the thing that is a bit different between Bitcoin and Ethereum is really about scale and about the amount of code that can be ran. So Bitcoin is a very conservative system that is highly concerned with decentralization. And it's not that they didn't have the idea of smart contracts in the form that Ethereum created them. It's that they were very cautious in not wanting to create a system where the blocks would get too large, mining would become centralized, or that it would be too hard for people to become miners. This is the main concern that separates Ethereum from Bitcoin. Um, Ethereum decided to make a little bit of 
an extra leap and allow for some more computation to go into the blocks. And it's a reasonable leap. They, Ethereum is by no means not concerned with decentralization. They are very concerned with, this, with the centralization and did a pretty good job of ensuring that the extra computer code that they're going to allow to run is not going to go too wild and make things centralized. Um, and they introduced the gas uh, metric as the way to enforce that. And you will you know, have a, a, an open market that will control the amount of computation that the global computer runs. But we also have a limit as well. We also have the same block limit in Ethereum as you would have in Bitcoin. So this has always been a debate in Ethereum as well, being cautious to raise the amount of information that can be processed at any given time. Um, you know, and then in kind of the general terminology, you know, is what Bitcoin runs a smart contract versus what Ethereum runs? Well, you know, that, you know, might depend on what you consider a contract. You know, if you want to consider a contract something that's more robust and can, you know, declare ownership over things in a much more robust way than a simple ledger of transactions, you know, then Ethereum kind of really brought the smart contract into being by increasing these computational limits and allowing for uh, more code to be executed than Bitcoin was willing to allow. Um, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, so Scott, maybe a question for you, since you, you've been talking about um, a little bit about the kind of contracts you've been thinking of, if we were to describe in the simplest terms, like what would be the simplest possible smart contract someone could write um, what would it do? What would it, what would be its anatomy? Like if you wanted to explain like the sort of the hello world of the smart contract, um, how would you, how would you describe that? Oh man, I never think about things in the simplest form. Um, what would be the simplest form of a contract that you could write? I mean, uh, the smart contracts that I, that I focus on really in terms of my day-to-day, -day, um, working with, with smart contracts are primarily all around um, NFT and NFT transfer. And obviously, smart contracts can do so much more than that. That's just what I look at and what I look at particularly for artists because it's really about the transfer of the, of the ownership. Um, the, the simplest smart contract is definitely a better, probably a better, better question for Nathan to actually answer. <laughs> Nathan, what would what would be the simplest smart contract you could actually write? I mean, I would agree. I, I think NFTs are probably one of the simplest smart contracts. Um, yeah, you could create ERC twenty tokens. That was some of the, you know, it's called ERC twenty. It's literally like the twentieth improvement proposal for Ethereum, right? It's uh, it's one of the very first smart contracts we ever wrote in Ethereum and. You know, its whole objective is to update the balance of a currency. Now that sounds like Bitcoin, right? It's it's really it's the same objective. Um, so you know, is that a smart contract? Is an ERC twenty contract a smart contract if it just updates balances? Well, maybe not. If we want to think of contracts as owning more than just a ledger, um, but you know, an NFT inherently links to physical objects, and so you know, recording the balance or the ownership of a physical object, you know, maybe that really is the first smart contract. Um, and you know, the ideas of smart contracts are also formulated around uh, titles and deeds um, and, uh, and wills and, you know, like executing a will automatically. So you can, you know, think about the ownership of the will being an NFT, and then you can stack some more execution on top of that by 
having an automatic execution that happens whenever somebody dies and maybe the assets will transfer automatically. And now you can start to see how smart contracts are, are evolving and becoming um, you know, more programmatic. Right, but in a sense, um, if a smart contract, let's say, uh, listening to, to you guys talk about it from the point of view, for example, of NFTs or of tokens, um, are we always talking about, um, uh, let's say, a, a, an address that that owns something that has a specific balance assigned to it? Maybe not a, the same as a wallet balance, but like a given quantity, like this asset or this amount of tokens, is, is that sort of the basis of the smart contract? Or does the smart contract also have to determine a bunch of other rules by default, meaning that it is for sale or it's not for sale? Um, it's uh does does the sort of um uh the, the 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 history of the asset matter in the smart contract itself or I, i'm just trying to get to essentially like what would be when i ask for the, what the simplest smart contract is 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 like what are the sort of parties that have to come together or the variables that have to come together for a smart contract to make sense because we also know that another obviously uh, entity in the uh, crypto world is is a wallet um which is can be a smart contract, I guess, but is not necessarily. So uh, I'm trying to sort of make a distinction between just owning an asset and, and then maybe why you get from there to having to need a smart contract. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. Um, you know, if we take the original definition from Nick, then it's, it's about the interactions of parties. And if you're simply talking about just the ownership being recorded um, in the blockchain ledger, then you're not really concerned too much with the interaction of parties, um, not more so than you would be on the base layer of the blockchain anyway. Um, so perhaps to be you know, strict with the definition of what a, a smart contract is, you do also need to have um, other ways to interact with that ledger and that balance. It's probably, I mean, a question that, again, I'll get you to answer, Nathan, I'll just pose it, but do you want to give a definition between uh, an understanding between the difference between a wallet and a contract. Yes, which uh, in technical Ethereum terms is becoming less uh, significant by the day. Ethereum is slowly turning wallets into smart contracts um, and for good reason, it increases efficiency. So, um, you know, traditionally a wallet is simply the public key in the ledger system of a blockchain system. So. It's simply an address where assets can land and it becomes kind of an identity inside of the blockchain system. And it has, you know, a corresponding private key that can unlock the basic feature of the protocol, which would be to identify yourself and to send any base layer assets that are assigned to that, that key. So that's kind of the traditional definition of a wallet. And it's only controllable by that private key. But as we start to move into blurring the lines between a wallet and a smart contract, what we're seeing are things like EIP 3470, I believe, which is um, an improvement proposal to allow smart contracts to sign on behalf of somebody. So you can create a system where you give, it's kind of like in the current NFT or ERC20 space where you allow a contract to spend an entire balance. That's technically, in the smart contract code itself, but this would be closer to the base layer where a wallet can allow some extra piece of code to operate on its behalf. So this identity would be not just 
an indicator of the base layer assets you know represented sitting on that but also the base layer assets and some additional code which is technically a smart contract yeah i was actually um there's a company here in belgium called argent i don't know if you guys are familiar with it they're a wallet company and they've been doing a lot of Advo 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 advocacy for um, what they call accounts abstraction, um, which is something that I had a really hard time understanding until basically I discovered what you were just describing. And in, in a sense, there's um, something I was, I was also trying to wrap my head around is what is a user in, uh, in the blockchain world, right? And what it comes down to is that a user is essentially a, a wallet address with um, a set of private keys and public keys um and that in a sense if if uh, scott you seem to be maybe disagreeing with me no 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 i agree it's just the level of abstraction that you can go to from there is really interesting in terms of you know is a user that the user in terms of the um and this this is where you get down to like the benefits of an anonymity on chain is the the user is really the private key and everything comes down to that private key and you can hold as a user you can hold one of the one private key or you can hold hundreds of private keys but the private key is what uh what signifies your interaction with um with the blockchain itself and so you know coming back coming a step back from that it's like is the user the person who holds all of those or is the user actually the private key itself and that's where you get into all these fun esoteric questions about uh who has statehood or personhood and can a contract act on behalf of somebody or do you need the private key of the actual um of the actual wallet in, in order to do so it's it's all i mean this i find all of this stuff quite fascinating i don't think i'm probably necessarily uh, the best person in the world to be commenting on on a lot of it but i do find it incredibly interesting um in terms of the the uh, the arguments that people can hold for some of those things so definitely not disagreeing with you finding it gray in terms of in terms of what people wanted to be um referring to in those areas yeah yeah it's, it's also interesting because account abstraction it will take what is traditionally in the responsibility of that account which is usually held by people um and it will now push that to the evm layer right so it'll push it to the smart contract layer and this will start to blur the lines of your own ownership and It'll, this is, I think, why account abstraction has been such a controversial topic in the Ethereum space. It's because it requires being very cautious with security. You're going to now have MetaMask um, asking you if it can basically hold all of your funds for you. Um, traditionally, MetaMask will, you know, it will need a signature from you every time you want to do something. But with account abstraction, the roles of paying for gas, um, for verifying ownership, and for um, you know replay protection on the blockchain, those won't be in the core level of the block production itself anymore. Those can be now in MetaMask's hands. And so this is now pushing a lot of the responsibility that miners traditionally had for protecting that layer for users now to MetaMask or to some other wallet provider. And um, I'm, in, I'm in support personally of account abstraction. I think that the benefits that we gain from that for the user 
far outweigh the risks. And things like MetaMasks and wallet providers are already in such a highly security conscious state because there are other ways that this thing can go wrong. Like MetaMask can still get spoofed and you can see all sorts of hacks that have happened with uh, people signing the wrong MetaMask transactions already. So it's it's already dangerous. This I, The argument does this make this more dangerous. That's actually another deep argument that might not be, it might not be more dangerous. Um, there's there's a lot of debate inside the Ethereum core about this right I now. I think it gets really interesting when we start talking about something that was designed for people who were very security conscious to begin with, that people who came into this world, well, like it is about the security and is it about you having the right and the understanding and the ability to have ownership of that. And that's what you want to fight for to then watch it, try and get probably more mainstream. And as it gets more mainstream, there becomes this realization that, oh, that amount of security is a barrier to entry for certain people. And the way to kind of remove that is to, is to abstract away some of that security. Um, you know, holding your private key is such a vital, it's such a, such a vital understanding that, that you should have to going into this world is what is a private key? What does it mean? How does, how does, basic cryptography work and why is it so important for you to be able to read everything that you sign as people have made it easier to get people onto that on-ramp, the abstraction away, or at least my own perspective, is that the abstraction away from the importance of that is like, oh, we'll, we'll just we'll just kind of, there's just this magic that happens over here. And it's like, it's not magic. There's a private key and you're signing something and that tells you what it's to hold onto that for everything that you can. And most of the security, um, and I am using air quotes for those who can see me, but for those who can't, a lot of that security that is being brought around now from my perspective is just abstracting away the private key further and further and further because they don't trust you with it. And so, you know, when you talk about having something on a cold wallet or moving that over to a ledger or something like that you're just you're just moving the private key further away to put more more hurdles in between you and what you need to sign um, and that seems to be the way that most people are dealing with security rather than necessarily through education uh, but maybe that's just me being the cynical person that i kind of am around certain forms of marketing yeah, I actually completely agree with that. Um, and I think when it comes to certain EIPs that are trying to e extract this uh, responsibility of gas payments, signature verification, and, um, um, and some of that into the EVM, you know, it, I think that for the end user, we will still be able to educate them on the importance of their private key. This is less like asking Coinbase to be a custodial wallet, but it, 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 you're right, it's still I think this is kind of the core Ethereum's pushback against this. Uh, well, the core Ethereum is kind of torn on this, but it's, uh, you know, the pushback is coming from a very, let's not even take a baby step into that direction. You know, let's, you know, let's be sure to um, always make sure that the, even the core of the responsibility of the most important things are not in the EVM's hands. And I think it's the same kind of sentiment that Scott just broadcast. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, I think uh, maybe just for the purpose of um, 
simplification in terms of how we bring this back to smart contracts, we could say that right now there's uh, sort of a movement towards, uh, let's say, abstracting the user and to making uh, the user more of a smart contract in a sense, which has advantages and disadvantages. Um, but maybe to go back to like a more simple point of view on, on smart contracts, would it be fair to say that um, if we take this metaphor that the blockchain is a computer, uh, or at least the, let's say the Ethereum blockchain um, and sort of ver Ethereum uh, similar blockchains, um, that smart contracts are software um, that runs on this computer? And if so, um, are there any things, any sort of metaphors that we would that would be useful to understand what kind of software it is and, and what it's able to do? Yeah, I think this is a cool concept. This is something where the blockchain space uh, has been trying to create definitions ever since it was created. Um, and more recently in the past three years or so, we've started to kind of hammer out what a blockchain really is. What is it? What is it doing? What are its core pieces and what are their core responsibilities? And a lot of this came out of um, scalability, right? Um, that kind of when I first described what Ethereum did with with smart contracts, it was taking a leap to allow for something that Bitcoin wouldn't want to allow for, allowing a little bit more execution to happen. And the reasons that you wouldn't want to do that would be too much data going into a distributed system and it becoming centralized. And so in scalability research, we've been trying to figure out ways to you know, increase the payload, uh, increase the throughput, and still keep that level of decentralization uh, that's necessary. And, so what we started to think about, and you know, when I say we, I mean people much smarter than myself, uh, they started to create these different categories of what a blockchain is. And so we can think about a blockchain and it's three different parts now. We have the execution layer. And when you talk about you know, what is the computer part of a blockchain, this is what we mean by that. This is the execution part. This is in Bitcoin, which the part would, that sends balances up and down. And in Ethereum, this is the EVM. And you know, even, even its core part where it sends balances up and down. So we have the execution layer, we have the consensus layer, and this is kind of the core innovation of you know, blockchains. This is where we use game theoretics to come to agreement on the ordering of transactions. Not necessarily that transactions are correct. You know, that's done in the execution layer, but in the layer where we want to make sure that ordering is done correctly, this will be in the consensus layer. And then we also have the data availability layer. And this layer is essential to the security of both the consensus layer and the execution layer to ensure that you can prove fraud in the execution layer and prove that orders are correct in the consensus layer. And so what we're now seeing are a design of blockchains that separate these three things. And so you'll see like snark layer twos that are handling just the execution layer. And we've found that we can actually centralize the execution layer as long as we have a really nice math proof that that's done correctly. And, but to do that, we still need to have a nice data availability layer so that people can ensure that the snarks are verifying on the correct thing. So people are now thinking about building a blockchain that is only doing data availability. And this whole, its sole purpose is to you know, pr provide proof that this data is available. And then the consensus layer is something more akin to the beacon chain that just released with Ethereum 2.0 where the whole point is to kind of have a, a staking system or some sort of value system that makes sure that people aren't going to cheat the ordering of, of blocks. So 
um, yeah, it is this execution layer. This this part of it is a, a core integral piece of what makes a blockchain a blockchain, but it's not the whole the whole part of you know it's not the whole uh, sum of blockchains. Okay, so so if we if we think of smart contracts, it would be a simplification to say that they're just a piece of software that runs on the blockchain. There, it's there's a little more to it than that. Yeah, it depends on how you want to define it. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious where smart contracts fit into the definition of data availability, uh, execution, and consensus. You know, in order for that contract to run correctly, it needs all three. Okay. Um, so maybe um, just to sort of talk about this in again very simple terms, um, could you guys give us some examples of things that um, a smart contract can and can't do? Um, obviously it lives within certain parameters, like, you know, we're not going to expect a smart contract to run and, and, and do some, something like a piece of software on a, on a, a windows PC would do. Um, but can we set some parameters around what is possible to do, um, with a smart contract? That's a, um, that's a glass half full kind of question. I feel like, or maybe, maybe more piece of string kind of question. Um, Ah, it's it's probably um I think the way one of the challenges that I guess that we're probably having here and seems to be you know central to the conversation is that the definition of a smart contract is broad and what you're using that smart contract for can be um can be quite specific. And so in the in the sense of if you know if we were taking this out of the blockchain world and saying, well, what is a contract? You know, you go to the courts and you're like, what is a contract? Did you enter into a contract or did you not? And that contract can be, you know, reams and reams and reams of paper, or it can be a handshake agreement that said you were going to do something. And it can be quite difficult, it seems, to actually say this is a smart contract. Um, if you look at it the other way. And sort of say, well, what is it that you actually want to achieve? And can that be achieved through the guise of implementing a smart contract? I think it becomes probably, at least in my eyes, it becomes a lot easier to understand, oh, this is what a smart contract can do. And this is why it can be beneficial for me or advantageous for me to, to, to use it in such a manner. And so I guess, again, I go back to the way that I use them and the, the reason and the rationale for which smart contracts were appealing to me, which is that as somebody who, you know, creates, has created, continues to create and continues to work with people and create digital art, the proof of ownership, the decentralized autonomous manner through which you can govern the, the, me the way in which people can interact with that that artwork and be removed from it um that's the real power that that the smart contract that the that you know that the smart contract has offered uh the artists as i know them and as i work with them the power uh to be able to sort of say well you know it was you could not you you literally could not sell your digital art on ebay like it, it, who was going to do it? Um, you know, there were all kinds of jokes about the fact that people would do it. Now, all of a sudden, um, there is a you know a huge marketplace that has opened up uh, for the 
interaction and buying and selling and the interaction with those those digital works that is still in such an infant stage that to me that's and you know obviously here we start talking about why everyone's so excited about you know metaverse and all of the promises that people are talking about but for me it's more it's it's exciting because it's the game that we all get to play um along along this path and so you know all of those works that you know i'm 45 and i interacted with these things on cd-roms and they were annoying and horrible and frustrating and now you can deploy all of that on an infrastructure that is kind of taken care of for you um if you're just prepared to learn the technology behind that and as we progress you know on a daily weekly and monthly basis the level of understanding that you need you know to launch that 12 months ago to launch your own marketplace to sell nfts was like expensive you can launch a marketplace now with contracts that people have um have have written for you and are ready to go in a matter of kind of a few days um similarly with writing that smart contract you know all of that code is 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 up there um for people to be able to see and so again this kind of comes back to some of that frustration where people for me at least when people talk about the fact that um they were hacked or that they signed something that they shouldn't have signed the, the the code that you're signing the contract is is literally there for you to go and read if you want to read it now there is a level of Obviously, that's great for people who are super anal retentive about these things, but it's it's not great for um, for people who just want the ease of, of clicking a button. But that's why it appeals to me and my sensibilities, because I like to get into the weeds of, of that sort of stuff, and that's why it's really interesting. Um, and that wasn't there if I was just going to a website that was hosted on AWS. Yeah, that's awesome. Scott's hitting on the power of smart contracts and then also at the same time, making a comment on what smart contracts can't do. So the, the power is this decentralization. You can quickly boot up a marketplace, which means you've replaced a middleman. You've replaced an arbitrator, right? You have done something that would have normally required having a, an entire infrastructure and probably a legal team to get done in the past. Um, and this happened with, you know, Visa and MasterCard in the early parts of this, where you don't need those middlemen anymore to, to create these systems. And that's extremely powerful. And because of that, we are now talking about the importance of decentralization. If something becomes centralized and can influence the power of that arbitrator, then we are in trouble. Then the, the kind of the big reason for wanting this kind of system in the first place will get stripped away if we allow for a centralized power actor to come in and um, you know do funny things in that process of of you know removing the middleman of exchange so that brings in a fundamental limit 
we can't allow for too much computation to get pumped into the system or else you'll end up with centralized nodes. And so you kind of see this spectrum of blockchains that come after Ethereum that are willing to sacrifice decentralization to some degree to increase the throughput. And I think the biggest example of this would be EOS, um, or I'm sorry, Solana. Uh, Solana sacrificed a great deal, now to their credit, put in a lot of work into the, the hardware that made it able to scale, but that was also a double-edged sword where increasing that throughput made it less decentralized. So this, this core piece that you need to replace these, these middlemen was now becoming more vulnerable because they were increasing the throughput of the system. So when people say, well, Solana is a better system because it has faster smart contracts or it can do more transactions per second or the smart contracts can hold in more information. Well, you have to question, is that really better? You know, has it actually improved because, you know, did it sacrifice something that was crucially important to what the system actually needs to operate? And so that's kind of the first thing that smart contracts can't do. It, there, there is a limit. Um, and now that limit might get better over time. We will come up with some, some science that will hopefully make that better. A lot of zero knowledge research is, again, this idea of separating blockchains into their three core components and understanding that is a, a better way of trying to increase throughput without sacrificing decentralization. Um, as hardware potentially gets better in the future, we will be able to increase that throughput a little bit more reasonably without sacrificing that decentralization as well. Um, but right, uh, there is a block limit in Ethereum. So when you're writing smart contracts, you will hit your first thing that smart contracts can't do. <laughs> you will, you'll write a smart contract and you'll try to compile it and it'll, it'll say it's, um, it's going to consume too much gas to deploy. That's the first one or the actual size of your code gets over 25,000 kilobytes, and then that can't fit inside of a single block. And so you might hit that limit as well. Um, so there's, there's some very basic cost limits to what you can do. So this inherently reduces you know, the application space of smart contracts. So we couldn't do order book exchanges. They were too expensive. We tried, there were some, some novel experiments with that, but things like DY, DX exchange, but you know, the idea of the liquidity pool became the solution to the computational problems of the original order book exchanges that we were trying to run in smart contracts. Um, you're not going to be, you know, flying a, a rocket in a smart contract anytime soon or playing anything more complex than chess. I mean, chess is even really tough to do in a smart contract. I've seen it done, but it's tough. Um, so there's the limit. I, I wonder if this is why I mean, but just thinking about you talking about that, I'm like wondering if this is why summer actually appeals to me because it does take me back to my like days of having to write things when memory was expensive. You know, when I was when I was learning how to code, it's like you had to think about like you had to think about things like memory and how much disk space you had and whether you could actually um, you know use all of the sounds that you wanted uh, because you were constrained in all of these very interesting ways. And part of the joy in solving those problems back then was to come up with these new or interesting approaches to how you could overcome the constraints of the system to still be able to deliver something that was just an incredible experience. And maybe the reason I get excited about smart contracts and blockchain is because it presents similar constraints. Um, on top of the use case, 
to be able to make it, it yeah it benefits a certain mindset that probably is aligned with the mindset of what I was taught you know growing up writing software and I'm just maybe I'm just like waxing too lyrically about why does it actually appeal to me and what do I find exciting about it but uh there's definitely something there in yeah I mean it forces you to to limit yourself which is interesting and actually it brings up a a point which is that um you know obviously uh Nicholas and I aren't aren't necessarily coders but we've been sort of seeing that um there are more and more people who are making um smart contract tools available sort of pre-built like Lego blocks kind of things um but if I'm hearing you correctly it would probably not be a good idea for this to be completely Lego blocked and have an equivalence to like you know one of these uh nodal type kids programming language uh, things where people could just make their own smart contract I mean um, it depends on um what you're trying to to do as a point of differentiation or what you're trying to hope to achieve uh and you know if you want to if if you're an incredible photographer who just wants to sell photos move to move to blockchain put them all up there use a pre-existing um uh contract from one of the providers create a marketplace own it do it yourself it's amazing it allows you to do that but it gives you all of those options and tools if however you're more creatively inclined and want to push the boundaries of what the technology is currently capable of doing then it's open to you in that in that manner as well and so I think that's again it's one of the things that I find really beautiful about the system and the system as to where it is right now is that it allows um it allows for all of those um those different viewpoints of view or desires to be met depending on the way that you want to actually engage and interact and and benefit from it as I'm going to say just as an artist, because that's what I think it's, it's, it's proving fantastic for right now is that it is a benefit to artists. And so if you are an artist right now and you're not paying attention to what blockchain can do for you, uh, you're probably, you know, like you're probably making a mistake in, in your artistic future. Um, and and what you know whether that comes to fruition or not over time we will see but that's that's definitely you know where where i'm at and what i believe um you know and that's that's what i find again that's what i find so exciting about it yeah sometimes these modular pieces do lead us to a place where it's a great thing and it becomes very easy to use work with and deploy for example if you're deploying an nft contract you're technically deploying a system of potentially nine different kind of subsystems working well together. There's like the ownership model, which will control, you know, what can be owned inside of that contract. And there's like storage models to help extend how you store the URI information inside of an NFT. So, you know, even on like on the, on the programming level, there's a, a modular nature to how we write these smart contracts in kind of a contract inheritance model. And this can be quite good. This, this can lead to things that get to a steady state where we're pretty confident that they're safe. And then once we're in that state, 
then it becomes quite easy to like reproduce and to boot up by anybody. Um, so if we can get to that steady state, then all of that uh, is really a positive. And the maybe downside is that it's quite hard to get to that state. Um, as a security auditor, I would often do DeFi audits um, about a year and a half ago when that was popular. And uh, we would get a lot of really smart engineering teams building extremely complex contracts. Um, you know, working not only with just traditional programming inheritance models, but also deploying other systems that were subsystems of main systems and interacting with contracts, um, transactions to each other. And we would end up with systems that were so broadly complex, we couldn't define in a short period of time, potentially a month, even with a full team of auditors, whether or not the system is truly safe. We could do the best that we could but there's so many possibilities of how the state can land, how many different states that system can end up in, that it became really hard for us to like kind of stamp a security approval on some of these things. So there's a bit of a limitation to, I think, how complex you want to get with writing smart contracts before it becomes unsafe. Um, you're probably all familiar with bridges. Uh, bridges are now this notoriously hard thing to get right. Um, and that's potentially because bridges need to reach outside of their own blockchain system. And so when we're talking about interactions, this is another fundamental limit of block of, of smart contracts is that they cannot see outside of their own blockchain. So for example, if I want to build an exchange and that exchange needs to have a price feed, or if I want to build some sort of price feed into my smart contract that knows the value of some assets, um, unless that asset is being exchanged on the blockchain and very carefully feeding that information to my contract then i would need to get that from you know potentially coinbase or some other outside uh, information source so we had to create this idea of the oracle to help feed like real world data into smart contracts and you've introduced trust whenever you have to do that it's it's a place where you start to lose a bit of the power of the decentralization inside of the smart contracting system whenever you need to introduce these kind of trusted things and you know another downside of bridges is that they kind of need that oracle type of a system you have to lock the the data on one side of the blockchain have some system then unlock it on the other side of the blockchain and that that some system is the hardest part to secure it's it's often the place that gets hacked it's um varying degrees of security exist inside of those intermediary systems for bridges so um, there are some kind of harder fundamental limits, I think, to, to writing smart contracts as well. We're hoping at some point to do an actual episode on oracles, but could you just sort of for our listeners, like just sum up in two, two sentences what an oracle is? Yeah, it's, um, it's a way to bring in outside data to your smart contract. Um, so the best way to think of this is I want to know the price of... Um, of wheat or of milk and my contract will trade an NFT token based on the price of milk. Well, the blockchain is not gonna know the price of milk. It'll have to go to the stock exchange or go to the supermarket to find that data. So you have to trust some human or some API in the web to inject that data into your smart contract. And this is the Oracle challenge. And there's you know varying degrees of centralization and decentralization to try and get that done. But I've not seen a fully decentralized Oracle. Makes sense. Um, so actually, one one of the things that um, Scott, you were saying uh, about 
sort of the the limitation of of the contract and sort of the, the sort of programming um, in 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 the knowledge of how much memory you can use and sort of the computational load that that the system can afford and things like that. Um, there's something that we discovered when we were deploying a project. Uh, at the time, we we had asked a developer we were working with to create uh, a contract for us because it was difficult at the time to find a uh, a contract that was easy for someone with no programming knowledge to put in your own name. Um, and we wanted we felt it was very important for it to be in our own name. And so this person said, "Yeah, okay, I've got this, but." for this to work well, it needs to call a proxy contract, which does gas optimization, and that cannot be in your name. So if you're really concerned about the entire chain of events being fully under, under your, uh, your banner, that's gonna be a problem. And at that point, I think for me, the realization was that, um, you know, we often, we often think of a, a smart contract, but it seems like it's rare that you interact with only one smart contract. Would that be accurate that there's sort of all these dialogues of things. And maybe also, as you were saying, Nathan, that when you were auditing this DeFi system that was maybe talking to a bunch of other things, like how does that um, sort of dialogue work between contracts and when do you need it? I think a lot of this can come back to just coding in general. And when you code, a lot of what you actually want to do is um, borrow. You just want to, you want to get things right. And, and, and you want to work at a particular speed. And more often than not, you're always borrowing something from somebody. And so everything, everything about working with a software is about abstracting the very challenging task of getting bits of information to switch on a, on a, on a piece of silicon. And and every layer that you go up from that abstraction is it, it makes life easier for you and cheaper for you. And so, you know, if you want to build it all directly, you you become a chip manufacturer and then you and then you write a piece of software that that allows you to interact with the chip. And then you write an operating system that interacts with multiple chips. And then you write a language that allows people to talk to that operating system in a more human readable form. Uh, and then you write applications that allow people to talk to that on, on top of that. And so what you're really always doing is abstracting out challenges and the more technically difficult parts to a trusted um, source that has been shown to do that task already for you in a repeatable manner that you can then take advantage of and use to, use to, your, to your advantage. And so, you know, you're not going to write Ethereum from scratch every time you want to write a blockchain. You're going to go and use Ethereum um, as, as your blockchain of choice. Uh, similarly, there are just certain elements of writing a smart contract that you're not going to, to, to write from scratch yourself. You're going to use one that has been heavily audited and has been known to be, you know, effective at doing the task that it does um, for better or for worse. Um, that's kind of that's kind of the paradigm to writing software. Um, and so, from this perspective, you're you're doing a similar thing where you're saying, which part do I need to own? What 
what libraries or other contracts or what, what am I borrowing from that'll get me there in a cost-effective manner? And um, which, which part do I actually need to be uniquely me? Um, and and that's, that's really the first question that you're asking whenever you're writing any piece of software. Uh, and so from that perspective, yes you are almost always borrowing something from someone somewhere which is why you know the the, the great joke of coding interviews is that every great coder just goes on to get uh, goes on to stack overflow to look up the answer anyway but but when you're being interviewed you're stuck in a room because half of half of writing software is learning how to find you know learning how to find the answer to your question in a in an effective manner um, and one of the coolest things about writing software on a shared resource system is that it is inherently borderless. This, this idea of creating you know, a contract that doesn't interact with other contracts, it's, it's almost impossible to do. And you know, an example of a contract interaction would be like creating an exchange and needing to interact with the ERC-20 token to whenever you know, trade happens to actually do the transfer. Those are two different systems, you know, a contract printed and created by whoever created that ERC-20 token and contract minted and created for whoever's built that exchange working seamlessly together and also just permissionlessly working together. You know, you couldn't even write a legal, um, you know, license that would stop that interaction from being possible. Um, there's kind of a, an authority that is written in the code and ethereum likes to call this code is law and it will just allow for these systems to work well together a lot of this is kind of the open source philosophy of of coding as well where you know you didn't have the base layer of the evm that kind of just always made it possible for things to work well together but you had like gpl licensing and you know a lot of work by richard stallman and these um these, these software developers to make sure that components of software work well together and um, yeah it's a very powerful thing this this thing is a world computer and it inherently kind of changes the way we think about building systems instead of building walled gardens and you know nation states and borders we build um together we collaborate we work together this this stuff is, I think, very underappreciated, especially in times when, you know, this system got popular and people weren't talking about this so much. This is really the most powerful, beautiful, awesome thing about this blockchain space that has kept me here for a decade and seemingly will keep me here longer. And then it's funny to watch people come into that state and be like, oh, but I can just build a wall around this and I'll make all the money. And you're like, oh God, you're missing a fucking point. <laughs> Usually push them to the platform. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you can build your website, yeah. you, can, you can build your platform, but when you come down to the EVM layer, it's, it's a bit of a yeah. different story. So, uh, uh, Scott, you said something about about being concerned about about um, something being expensive. I'm sure maybe you maybe you meant computationally expensive, but I guess in the case of writing smart contracts, there's also a cost in 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 uh, in gas potentially for for how the contract runs and one of the things that we uh, I think we hear uh, a lot in in sort of conversations that are things that topics get that get thrown around smart smart contracts is that some aspects of smart contracts are more expensive to play with than others and and I think I've heard people say that for example 
something that I'm not sure I completely understand called call data is less expensive to interact with than other aspects of smart contracts. Could you guys unpack that a little bit and maybe talk about what you're concerned about when you're writing a contract? What are the things that you need to be worried about from a cost perspective? When, and I mean cost as in gas. Um, and and what are you know what are these sort of hierarchies within the contract that that are maybe in some cases more expensive to deal with? And and what do they mean? It's all about passing the buck, really. And it's it's a lot of it is is where does that? And when I said when I was saying expensive earlier. Um, I wasn't being specific about. I was I was being general for for a purpose because really it is all about you know at the end of the day it's it's this movement of of funds that that is driving everything that that is being done and so um, I was talking about expense in terms of the hours that you spend on it the dollars that you're paying the developer to spend on it plus the cost that might it might be to actually get it up on chain. Uh, it's all of those things and what you're really doing in your mind when you're thinking about this is where where do all of those costs end up coming and going from in order to to get to the end product to the client um, or purchaser or whoever it is that you're actually um, talking about so yeah I was definitely being vague in general um nathan is definitely the one who's going to tell you much more about what what cost is on a on a smart contract and and ethereum um manner than i will be yeah yeah uh, so on the deeper technical side um there are like three places that you can store data and this is like a, another part of the crucial decentralization question of how much are we willing to pay um how much are we willing to store and what you know does that do to the system if it becomes too bloated right um so there's like kind of three places that you can store information inside of ethereum and that would be storage memory and call data and so storage is the traditional hard storage that you would think of on a computer as the persistent layer this is the stuff that gets put into the state uh try of the ethereum state itself so it's things like your balance um your nft ownership these things actually get plugged directly into the state system where smart contracts can then interact with it. Um, and then there's memory, which is this kind of um, in-term place where things are stored on the node itself as it's running operations on that persistent state. Uh, that's like a much cheaper place, but it's of course not persistent. Uh, and there's call data, and this is another non-persistent layer of uh, the memory and storage structure of smart contracts. But the kind of cool thing and probably why you hear about call data is that this is the data that gets sent with a transaction to a smart contract. So what happens is that data actually does kind of get stored somewhere. It technically gets put into the blockchain itself inside of the call to the smart contract, but it's not being stored in the state itself. So you can make some bit of persistence out of that. And so you'll hear like an NFT project that'll put a bunch of data into the call data because it is much cheaper to put it there. And you will have a more of a verifiable proof that the data has been immutable than say perhaps using an IPFS link where the, the you know, servers of the people hosting the file might you know, disappear one day. Um, as long as the blockchain's there, you'll kind of always be able to see that call data, but you won't be able to interact with it in the smart contracts. You won't be able to you know, read from the call data inside of the smart contracts from a previous block and things like that. So it's, um, 
yeah, it's a cheaper layer, but it's perhaps less useful. But so when people say that they're, um, let's say, putting uh, some of their their code on chain to generate, you know, a, a sort of on chain artwork like CryptoPunks or or one of these projects, where do they put that that data that's running to generate the the asset? Uh, that all depends. It'll be in either state storage or um, in call data. Uh, so the more recent ones, like so something like a CryptoPunk, it's all in state storage um, because the image is so uh, non-complex. It's, it's so simple. It can actually store the bits of information that it needs to inside of the Ethereum state in a fairly reasonable way. Um, so any image that kind of looks like a CryptoPunk can potentially have that. And of course, some projects kind of didn't, um, I guess, put in the legwork to understand that fact and then created things that look like CryptoPunks but don't actually store it in state. And so what they'll do is they'll store an IPFS link, which is like an external link to um, uh, an outside server that is, you know, questionably immutable, but it's it depends on if there's going to be things hosting that in the future. Uh, and there's projects that have pumped more complex image data into the call data which um, is something that you can still read from websites and kind of put that into the world and see. And it's, it's technically in an immutable place, but um, yeah, it's not very good for contract interactions. Um, and then more recently, you're seeing a lot of people working with SVGs and those are also stored in the state and fully on chain and fully immutable and can interact with them. I think what you'll find is as a general rule by repeating what Nathan's saying, storage on chain, super expensive. And so anytime you've got a mint and a thing, and a lot of the way that, I guess a lot of the, the way that prices have been brought down from a gas perspective in terms of minting purely on-chain works is to have the upfront hit by putting everything in the storage space and then creating the ownership of the token to be as minimal as possible. And so if all of your SVG data or your uh, HTML code or whatever goes into the storage state, you have this one upfront cost um, of here's how much this work, this, this costs to manufacture. However, um, when you're then creating each of the artworks, that cost is quite minimal from a gas perspective. So you're minting a token, which is just, you know, and a 64 bit, whatever, whatever that token size needs to be, the two of them then combine to output the artwork for you with provable ownership. And depending on how many hundreds of artworks you generate, the more artworks you generate, the more the cost of the storage state is you know, kind of dispersed or amortized yeah, across all of those artworks that are created as a result afterwards. You use something, use what are called view functions to make that achievable. So there are ways to just read data from the blockchain, and then that cost gets put on to say you're using an Infura node to read that token URI. Then you know you put the initial upfront cost of storing the code for the SVG data as the deployer of the contract. But every time yet you actually want to see the image. You're actually putting the cost on the Infura node, <laughs> and so there is actually a limit that Infura will let you read back. Um, they'll try to you know, make sure to rate limit so that you don't just break their nodes, but not it's not a blockchain constraint. That's a whole other topic: uh, how nodes interact with the chain and all that stuff. That's a another interesting thing to explore at some point. 
Um, so uh, I think one, one other question when it comes to terms that people hear about a lot um, that are not necessarily super clear in terms of how they come together, what they mean and, and why they exist are all these uh, ERC um, standards, I guess. Um, so for example, people are mostly familiar for, with NFTs about the ERC 721, um, with uh, crypto tokens, we usually hear about ERC-20. Um, what are those sort of, how, how do those things come about, like these proposals and these, how do they get accepted and, and used? And, um, and, and can anybody just say, well, I've got a good idea. I want to make a new type of NFT contract and I'm going to call it uh, ERC-3333 and just go ahead and do it. Or like, how does that whole process work to get to a point where we end up all using these these standards? I guess. Yeah, it's uh, one of the cool things about the blockchain space. You know, uh, Ethereum is a DAO. It, it's a decentralized organization where people use a democratic process to in, to vote on its improvement proposals, and so there's a, a very structured system that you can go to to um, either put in an EIP or an ERC. Uh, now, these are two different things. EIPs are proposals that are meant to deal with the core of Ethereum. You know, something like uh, accounts abstraction, for example, that's an EIP. Um, but something like an NFT contract or an improvement to an NFT, that's more in the application layer. And then that would be an ERC. That's an Ethereum request for comments. Um, now, there's a system for putting either one of those in, and you can go to their GitHub and it's open to anybody you just you have like a template that they like you to follow and you write about it you create your abstract you kind of put in a little bit of um, a prototype of the implementation and then you put it out to the community and then from there the community either attaches to it or doesn't attach to it and that's how voting works in you know as i say ethereum and bitcoin or DAOs. You know, you vote by your willingness to accept new new improvement proposals and new software updates and things like this so if it's popular and people vote to like it, then they'll start using it and actually it'll become a part of either the blockchain itself or a new smart contract standard. And in, uh, in terms of, you know, for example, Scott, you were talking about, about your interest in dynamic NFTs, for example, um, and, and Nathan, whatever you are working on with, with music, like, do you find yourself being in, in positions where you're writing a contract and you be like, I wish this existed? Um, and, and then you try to sort of put it out there that, that it would become some kind of new standard. Like, how do you guys approach those in your sort of daily, um, developer work? How do you approach those questions? Scott, have you ever written an ERC or an EIP? I, I have not. And it's, uh, it's weird. Cause I was, I was having a conversation the other day about something that I was thinking should be one. And it's the first time I've ever actually sat there and been like, oh yeah, this is actually this. And and I cannot for the life of me right now think about what it was, which is really, this is like the perfect time to be like, oh, here's the thing that I want. Let's make it happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I it helped you draft it up. Isn't I know, it? yeah. It's, it's, a, you know, it's yeah, people work on it together. It's, it's and, yeah. totally frustrating because, yeah, there was, a, there was a moment recently where I was like, oh, this is something that should, that should actively exist. And, you know, there's the frustration that, there's the frustration of that can occur because of the time that it takes for these things to actually be implemented, which I understand um, why people feel frustrated about that. But the openness, the visibility, um, the the ability for you to be able to get involved in that process is 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 
kind of mind blowing, you know, but that's that's the, the beauty of open source software. Um, everyone gets frustrated about the fact that, you know, there's something on Windows or there's something on Mac OS that drives you crazy and hasn't been fixed and you have no idea when it's coming or whether it's coming or when it'll get fixed. Um, this this system is is open and if there's something that drives you nuts you can submit that you can watch it flow through the system and you can see it implemented um, over time so uh, you know it's such a it's such a powerful benefit to 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 why this it's going to continue to grow and it's a that's that's the beauty of open source software yeah, it's it, it is a kind of academic slow process and it requires rallying troops and getting a lot of people together to kind of get one of these things accepted into the mainstream. Uh, I've written a few ERCs. I don't think I've ever written an EIP. Those are very, very hardcore. Usually there's only, and this is kind of a, a problem, I think, that there's only a small set of people in the world that can really understand a blockchain to the point of being able to write an EIP. It'd be really great if you know, there wasn't so much responsibility in the hands of a small set of people. I don't think this is great for decentralization. Um, but as far as ERCs go, they're a little bit more accessible. And I've written a few. And um, the one that I think caught on the most and probably might even be implemented somewhere at this point, I've gotten some requests to work on it, but I haven't been, I haven't had the time to work on it. But it's, uh, it's just adding an extra layer to an NFT where an artist can sign any piece of data because if you have a private key you can always create signatures on messages so they could do something like go on their social media account and write you know i'm verifying my identity and then sign that in metamask and then come out with like a blob of data and then post that on their social media account and then to prevent like fraudulent nft contracts from getting published that look like the original artist any user then could take that off of their artists their favorite artist social media that blob of data and then post it into the NFT contract. And it would either say, yes, this came from the original artist or no, this did not come from the original artist. And this was a bit of an attempt to help preserve provenance and, uh, and a bit of security. Um, a lot of platforms like to tell you that they're the authority on making sure that fake NFT projects don't come out. And I find that a little bit silly because we're given all the tools we need <laughs> right there in, in cryptography. Um, so I think that's probably one of the proposals that I wrote that was the most interesting. Um, and there's a current one out right now that I implore all listeners to check out. It's not written by myself, but written by some uh, other awesome people. Um, uh, it's written by uh, Felipe de Primavera and uh, Isaac. Oh, I forget his last name, but he's the developer from Dow House. Um, and this is EIP 5999, or it might be ERC 599. I think they're actually making an EIP. I think it's EIP 5999. And this is an extension to NFTs to um, obey a licensing scheme where you can code licensing schemes into the NFT itself. And if somebody wants to remix that NFT, uh, you have to obey whatever the code license is written on that NFT would be. And their idea is to use this to extend CC0 and to extend the Creative Commons licensing to help encourage remixing and to, to make remixing valid and more acceptable without kind of questions of legal ramifications in the outside world. Um, and you, know, you can also potentially attach some value transfer to remixing with that protocol as well if you, know, you wanted to you know, have royalties that trickle up the remix chain, so to speak. So I find that to be a pretty interesting one that's currently being developed right now.
Yeah, that actually brings up a, a question about um, NFTs. It's a little bit of a pie in the sky question, but but you know, I think coming from the perspective of, uh, I just gave a, a sort of a class recently to people who didn't know anything about NFTs, and I had to explain to them the fact that um, obviously the NFT itself is not the artwork. Um, we know that, but um, it also contains almost, I mean, I, I guess in a few cases it does contain the metadata, but it doesn't even necessarily contain the metadata. Um, and so in a sense, there's this idea that the smart contract, uh, you know, in people's perceptions is very hard to understand, you know, if you haven't sort of already been seeped into, uh, first of all, digital arts um, and the problems of digital arts for, for, for ownership, and then sort of understand uh, digital scarcity and how uh, crypto or let's say the world of crypto has uh, used this concept of digital scarcity to create values and incentives, etc. For those people, it's very difficult to understand this kind of uh, tripartite structure, right? And so maybe the pie in the sky question is, is it conceivable one day to imagine that these three core components of an artwork that is sold as an NFT could become one digital asset? So the, the artwork, the, the code that assigns ownership and value, and all the information about the artwork living as one digital asset on chain? Or is that something, because of course we understand that the, the heavier the thing is, the more uh, it's costly and difficult to store in a decentralized way. We need, you know, everybody has to store a copy of it. I mean, it becomes a little bit unwieldy, but is that a, is that a structural obstacle that we will never overcome? Or is there a potential future where this actually happens in some reconfiguration of things? I think that really depends. Uh, we, you know, it depends on the complexity. If we're, if we're talking specifically about art, it depends on the complexity of the art because we do have SVG projects that currently satisfy all of those requirements. The code's there, the actual data is there, and the ownership model is there. But for me personally, I think trying to explain really that the important part of what's happening is based around the ownership model. And like you said, you know, trying to educate people on the power of, of decentralization and the power of being able to um, not have to obey others' authorities to have an ownership model. That is something as a, as a community builder in the space, I have had a very, very hard time with. It's very challenging to almost have this communication with a society itself that has been built to be owned and operated so you know yes on a technical level and, and even on a technical level i do see the ability for this stuff to store more data in the future and become you know more fully immutable you know but we already have the ownership model and there's no need to even improve that yet we still have a very hard time with our current just society and cultural systems with being able to you know, educate people on why they're using NFTs in the first place or why they're using cryptocurrency in the first place. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I don't see it as being a technical. Um, the, the problem is not a technical problem. The problem is, is in um, education and agreement. And that's like everything. I mean, you know, this is humanity. Um, in general, I think when you were talking earlier about, you know, the process of, of what happens, I was reminded of that hilarious 
you know, cartoon of, of how does a bill become a law that uh, Nathan's like, oh, I remember seeing that in, in high school or whatever. Um, and I know it's been used previously, but there is this, you know, there's this process um, uh, through governance and a lot of, a lot of the same problems will, will occur here. The technology should speed all of that up, but it's not a sort of technical issue. Um, as to why that stuff isn't existing or can't exist. It's uh, it's more of just getting to an agreement of how best exists and then moving forward with that. Okay. Licensing is the biggest one. I mean, I just, for me, I, I the thing that I find really interesting about um, NFTs and as I've spoken about before is that really what you are selling is the license. And that's the case with almost all artwork um, when you're selling NFTs. And so I'm not talking about DeFi or any of that sort of stuff here, but just NFTs. When you sell your work, you sell your work and you maintain, you sell with it certain rights and you don't always sell all of those rights. So if you paint a physical painting and you go and sell that painting, you haven't necessarily sold the rights to the digital ownership of that or the person who has bought it hasn't necessarily bought the right to be able to print that in whatever book they want or use it in a commercial um, without your permission. That's not that that's not how the current real world works. Digital uh, NFT transfer, the same deal. If you are selling that NFT, you you have to be clear about the rights that you're assigning with the transfer of ownership of that NFT and what you're actually selling. And so much, especially over the last, you know, 12 months NFT boom was done without any understanding of, of those rights whatsoever. People just made assumptions about what they were owning and how they would own it. And I think that for me, that's one of the most interesting things going forward about um, NFTs and the ability to, to progress the market um, is getting that clarity around the licensing, the ownership, the transfer, and understanding what you're actually buying. Um, yeah, but and, the, the, the thing that, you know, going back to the earlier question about what NFTs can and can't do, um, what, what, what I think we've seen a little bit is that it seems like, uh, sorry, not NFTs, but smart contracts um, in general. And it seems like uh, NFT smart contracts still can't guarantee authenticity uh, because in general, for example, when you, let's say that you buy an, a piece of art from a uh, painter or a photographer, you know, you'll usually get two things. You'll get a certificate of authenticity that is signed by the artists that gives you an addition number or, you know, a date of, of creation, et cetera. And then you get a contract from the intermediary, either the artist himself or the gallery or whatever, right? So those two things are key in the value proposition of arts. And with NFTs, it seems like we've sort of given up on the, uh, <laughs> so we talk a lot about the licensing and about the ownership and things like that, but authenticity doesn't seem to be an, a key vertical anymore because with digital assets, does it really matter that this copy is that copy? And there was that, um, there was that sort of experiment that Moxie Marlinspike did at some point where he, he sort of, he, he, he 
wrote this smart contract where he was pointing to an asset um, on, on a server, but depending on when the contract was run or some other variable, the asset would be served differently. So you would have, yeah. you know, different. And so it seems like in a sense that maybe that idea is also a matter of education, that authenticity for digital asset is less important, obviously, than for physical. But it, is it, would you agree that, that that is something that's sort of left pending in this uh, exploration? I think people aren't necessarily putting all of those details into the purchase of the NFT. They can if they would like to, um, but just a number of them don't. And so I agree with everything you're talking about and going back to what Nathan was saying, you know, the owner of the work, there has to be a, um, a means for the person who created that work to be able to say, yes, I am that person and I created it. And that should be done through the private key of their public wallet, saying that this represents me and, and I have signed a proof that I own this. And then the actual ownership of the work, the work itself, there are ways that you can distinguish, um, you know, the authentic version that has been approved. Um, and so that, that should be there as well. Um, and then that going forward would attach a license to it to say that this is what I am actually selling. So the work can get sold in multiple ways if you want it to be able to sell it in that manner. So if you, I don't know, let's just go with a photo because it's really easy. You take a photo or something and you want to sell that as an NFT, you can sell it with multiple rights attached to it. So if you want to sell it to um, a uh advertiser who wants to use it in their campaign you can do that like it, that that exists right now um you can just move that on chain and it can be an easier more open process for you to be able to say this is what you get when you actually own the license that you have bought and the contract that you have entered into in this manner and you can do all of that on chain um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's humans that are still using these tools that we're creating, and we can't ever remove the human layer from this. So all of, I think it's, it's not the case that NFTs don't do anything for digital authenticity. We've actually, as Scott said, created these better systems where it is much easier to prove authenticity but we're still humans touching these systems. And we even now have things like EIP 5999, which will just be an extra layer even to record the rights in the contract itself so that you don't have to write um, a physical representation of what the fair use rights were for, for an NFT. It's actually just there in the same you know, state and inside of the same contract. But it'll always be up to humans to obey those laws, just like we can write a contract on a physical piece of paper well, that's meaningless until we go to court and have a social understanding of that physical tool. Um, okay, I'm, I think that's, I've kind of run out of questions for now, but uh, I, I do have one last question and maybe Nicholas has, has something he wants to add as well. Um, the, the, if either of you um, had sort of one thing that you would want to tell people, or would you imagine that you want, we would want people to know and understand about smart contracts, uh, that 
you think is not something that's commonly known and that should be known, what would that be? They're not as difficult as people might like to make them out to be. They don't have to be as difficult as people make them out to be. And that, you know, if you, um, yeah, if you want to get involved with them, I don't know, get a good smart contract lawyer or, or, or go, go and learn those tools yourself because you, 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 you know, you can do it if you can, if you're interested in writing software, you can write smart contracts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I would want people to know is that they are for you. They're not for um, some value extractor. They're not for a middleman. They're not for a corporation or a pump and dump scheme. They aren't a beanie baby. They aren't for any of these external ideas. They are for you. They are for you to be able to um, have your own power, your own ability to um, write your own voice, your own your own power. Just as the early days of cryptography gave us the ability to speak privately without having power spying on us. You know, a contract is simply an extension of that where we have the power to interact with each other without some other authority telling us how to do that or why we should do that. And that's something I think doesn't get spoken about nearly enough. No, it, what's interesting uh, from the first um, podcast we had is it's all, always about governance, like the actual governance of our humanity, of, of our how, how we, we structure our system is for me the only barrier for the evolution of of this like giving back the power to the people in a way so and this is maybe not the work of of the technicians or engineers like you or but more like uh, yeah like the other governance people working and uh, advocacy and so i think yeah it's it's more complex than just technology so uh, it makes also quite interesting uh, to be into this movement, uh, I don't, movement, it's not a movement, it's a change, a paradigm change. So it's quite interesting. Uh, yeah. At the end of the day, it always falls into the hands of the politicians, doesn't it? Please invite me back if you ever do a podcast on DAOs. <laughs> I'm very much interested in that. Well, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to both of you and for taking the time during your uh, lunch hour and uh, it's been super interesting to, to hear both of your point of views. Um, very enlightening. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thank you for reaching out. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you.